Good evening, friends. I was coming in from outside not too long ago, and it's uh, very lightly started to snow. And I could hear the snow falling. Very fine sound as it hit uh, something, leaves, blades of grass, I'm not sure what that uh, soft sound. I was thinking what a uh, a blessing to be in a place that's quiet enough to hear snowfall. And I had the thought if if it wasn't so cold, maybe we'd just go all outside, I'll go outside and listen to the snowfall. The eloquence of that far surpass anything I might say. We might listen to the talk maybe in the same way as we might listen to the snowfall. Just let it come to you and let it move through you. As many of you know, if the best way to listen to a talk I think anyway, is with the meditative mind. In so many of the discourses, uh, those who are listening to the Buddha teach, at the end of it, many of them, sometimes all of them, get fully enlightened. And I used to think this was something they stuck on there to make the Buddha look good. (laughs) And maybe that's true to some extent, but there have been times, and this I noticed especially uh, when I was practicing with uh, Venerable Sayada Upandita, I had such powerful experiences listening to his teaching. And he was speaking Burmese, it was through a translator. I don't even know if they got it right. But my experience was so profound that it was obvious to me that if one were listening in the right way and it was the Buddha teaching, that awakening could easily happen then. And I I don't put myself in the same league as either Sayada Upandita or certainly the Buddha. But I know from my own experience um, that sometimes Listening in that way can be incredibly powerful. So don't listen trying to let it come through and to you and through you. And if there's anything useful, it'll stay. And the rest just can wash through and out. There's a book that I love, uh, that I've loved for a long time, a Dhamma book called Heartwood of the Bodhi Tree. It's by the great Thai forest uh, master, Ajahn Buddha Dasa. And in the book, he summarizes the entirety of the Buddha's teaching in one short phrase that's from the suttas. Four words, sabbe dhamma nalam abhini vesaya. Sabe means all. When we chant the metta practice, sabe satta, sabe panna, all beings. Dhamma, in this case, it would be translated as, as things. Experiences. Nalang means should not, and abhini vasaya means uh, to be clung to, so that those words mean nothing whatsoever should be clung to. You could say identified with, grasped onto, latched onto. In, in one of the suttas in the middle length discourses where this may have been, where Ajahn Buddhadasa probably drew on this or a similar teaching, Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation 
slightly different for that same phrase. Nothing is worth adhering to, sticking to, adhesion, like stickiness, clinging. And in the sutta, the sakka, the king of the devas, one of the deva planes, realms, has come before the Buddha and he asks this question, Venerable Sir, how in brief is a practitioner liberated through non-clinging? And the Buddha says, Here, O ruler of gods, a practitioner has heard that nothing is worth adhering to. When one has heard that nothing is worth adhering to, one directly knows everything. Having directly known everything, one fully understands everything. So, uh, and Ajahn Buddha Dasa says, if you've heard this teaching, you've heard it all. If you've practiced it, you've practiced the entirety. And if you've gained the fruits of this, you've gained all the fruits. Joseph has something, he, I think he may have said it when he was here in part one, but he, he likes, he often says that I think follows directly on from this, he said it does not matter to what you do not cling. It's a funny way of putting it, but it doesn't matter. It's not like it's better to not cling to one thing rather than another. It doesn't, also doesn't matter when we do not cling. And it would be nice if we could just decide, oh, okay, I'm done. <laughs> you know, I'm, just, I'm done with clinging. But and maybe in moments you might actually decide that. I don't know, let's try it for a couple of minutes right now. <laughs> just sit quietly, you don't have to change your posture. Let's just sit here and not cling to anything. Take a little poll afterwards, see what kind of luck any of you have had. Just sit quietly and don't cling. Don't latch on to anything. How's it going out there? Not that hard. It's a not doing. You might just, might you just not cling for the rest of the retreat? Let's just do that. <laughs> we won't need any more of these talks or, it's just, from now on. But really what we find, I think, is that we, we might be able to just decide, like just now. Anybody notice non-clinging? Come on, put them up there. Yeah, no big deal, huh? Then, of course, we discovered times when we are clinging, because that's mostly how we explore this, is, is seeing where we do get caught, where we cling, where we adhere, where we identify with some aspect of our experience. 
the possibility, this reality of this non-clinging. It's not usually a decision we make, but it's through feeling the suffering of clinging. It's like noticing that we're clenching our fist and then we let it go. And it's such a relief. And seeing that relief trains the mind and heart to trusting that possibility of releasing that. And we also explore non-clinging by, by uh, engaging in practices that are, are kind of counter to that, that actually train the mind and heart in letting go, you could say, or in non-clinging. I think it's essential that we take as broad a view as possible of what we think of as our practice and of this path. And kind of from a couple of perspectives, this sense of having this broad view of path and practice in terms of the things that we exclude in our momentary uh, experience, say in meditation, what things fall outside of the practice or do we hold as being in the way of it, as it's in the way Or this is not, this is, I got to get rid of this so I can practice. If we notice anything arising that, that feels like that, that's a good time to make this space of the mind and heart big enough to include that too. And again, this too. all of our clingings, all of our resistance. Our sleepiness, our just don't want to do itness, our grumpiness or whatever. And then also seeing if there are ways that we somehow think of practice and life as somehow separate things. We use language. I hear people talk about in my practice, in my life, as though these are two different things. And maybe, of course, we made it in our retreat life. It's different from our life off of retreat. But it's, it's, I need to really look and see if we're somehow, we have this valuing, you know, of, of time spent sitting with our eyes closed in, in a meditation hall or, or med- meditating wherever we might do that. And that's, that's practice. Being really careful if we're looking at things that way. And one way of seeing our practice, seeing this path, seeing that unfolding that I think really counters this tendency to have to narrow practice down to just certain activities is to see, understand, hold the path in terms of uh, the perfection of the paramis. Don spoke about the paramis earlier in the retreat. And in in the story of the Buddha to be the Bodhisatta said that the that one, the Bodhisatta, perfected these qualities of the Paramis over countless lifetimes. I'll read the list of them in Pali and in English. So the first, usually, this is the the way they're usually listed: Dana or giving, Sila, ethical conduct, Nekama, renunciation, Panya, wisdom. Virya, energy or effort, includes perseverance and courage in that. Kanti, patience and forbearance. Satcha, truthfulness. Aditana, resolve. Metta, loving kindness, friendliness. And Dupekha, equanimity. And I think they're useful as a model for 
uh, practice for this unfolding of uh, the path. And they also uh, function as kind of a description of the awakened mind. You could say they're developed as our practice unfolds. And when fully developed, when brought to uh, this, uh, you could say fullness or perfection, then they're the expression of the awakened mind, the expression of the mind which is no longer under the sway or under the rule of the energies of greed, hatred and delusion and all their, all the ways those energies show up. And seeing the path in this way may be especially common in, in some of the, the Asian countries where I've spent time. Uh, certainly many of my teachers uh, speak about practice in this way relate to it, talk about uh, the ripening of paramis with the understanding that, that this is different for different people. We're not all the same in this regard. And I think it has to do at least in part with the fact that they tend to see, uh, take a very broad view of, of practice unfolding over long period of time, over lifetimes. And we don't have to believe in lifetimes. We can see the flow of our our life moment by moment as a series of lifetimes. And this sense of, of rebirth and um, flow over time, over long, large amounts of time. But it might be interesting to, to reflect in this way. I mean, what if this whole retreat is just about patience? or determination, some, some form of determination, or trying and connecting with um, kindness in different ways. What if this whole lifetime, not just this retreat, what if this whole lifetime is about exploring and getting to understand energy and effort, or exploring equanimity, Are you, is that okay? Are you okay if this whole retreat is just about perseverance, sticking to it through thick and thin? Is that all right? Sometimes we meet people where, or one or more of these qualities just seems like they come into life with it highly highly developed. Someone is just very kind or generous or has a lot of energy. I think of my mother in this regard. I didn't really notice it when I was a kid, but she had a lot of these qualities. She had so much energy. She took care of our house. She did pretty much all the cooking she worked and she had, we had beautiful garden, which is hard to do in Southern Arizona. <laughs> so dry and hot much of the year. She was a really good potter. Almost all the dishes uh, that we used on a daily basis she made. And uh, she was part of a cooperative uh, arts and crafts gallery as part of her interest in ceramics. And so she, she the people who put their stuff there also worked and ran the place. She did that. And she did, uh, she made most of her own clothes. <laughs> she did all this volunteer work, delivering meals for people who were homebound and didn't have a lot of support and teaching. She had friends and she had time for them. She raised four kids, taught nursery school at a certain point. I mean, it's, it's impressive <laughs> talking about it. She, and it wasn't like a big deal. It's just my mom, right? She just did it. There wasn't this compulsion or strain or just, just the way she was. I think holding this vision of our practice, the spiritual life as this uh, process of, of the ripening of the paramis is so helpful because it, because of this ability to expand the breadth of what we think of. 
as our practice and cuts through our tendency to be judging and assessing and looking for evidence of progress and all the comparing and the projections and looking, is it working? Am I doing it right? Am I getting it? Whatever it is. Everyone else seems to be getting it. What if they get it all? There's none for me to get. Everybody already got it. And we judge our experience and we judge ourselves based on our perception of that experience. And we overlook these qualities that are constantly being developed just because we show up again and again. In the list I just read of the paramis, Dana is the first one of those. And Dana and Sila, Dana Sila, are also the first two aspects of another model of the path called the threefold training, Dana Sila Bhavana. <coughs> Trainings in, in giving, generosity, in ethical conduct, and Bhavana, which means mental cultivation. We've used this word at times. This is one of the ways the Buddha taught. <clears throat> I remember I was uh, talking to Kamala Masters, a friend and colleague, a really great teacher, and she said her her uh, her main teacher, her first and and most uh, really most important teacher for her was uh, Anagarika Munindra Ji, also Joseph Goldstein's first teacher, and and she said that Munindra called uh, Dana Sila and Bhavana the three pillars of the Dhamma. She said, Munindra would say, the whole path is contained in these three pillars, dana, sila, and bhavana. That that framework um, contains them all and that they all must be developed for the path to be complete and come to fullness and fruition. And maybe because dana and sila come first and Maybe they just, I don't know, they don't get as as much uh, attention as the bhavana part. We tend to see them as preliminary or or something we sort of maybe do and get them in place and then we do the, the real thing and we focus on this mental cultivation, on the meditation practices as though that's the real thing and, and as though somehow it's linear and you do these ones and then you get to the real deal which I think is, is a mistake and very narrow limiting way of looking at this, at these three pillars. You know, see, I like the image of, of these three pillars. A pillar sounds like a very strong thing and three of them is a very stable thing. They need to be equally strong. In my experience, my understanding, my relationship to uh, dana, sila, and bhavana, constantly being refined, and especially my appreciation for dana and sila. It's woven into the fabric of our practice at every stage and step. And its potential power in our lives, in the world is, is really vast. And I think if we were to make Dana and Sila the focus, the main focus, the central focus of our practice, with this intention to really uh, watch in the heart and mind and really try to understand, do it as an exploration, that we would find that, that the bhavana was brought along through that, that the whole path would arise, that we would inevitably develop the whole path. I wanna, if I ever get to what I'm planned to talk about, <laughs> which is some of this stuff, but I really want to talk about dana, <laughs> practice of giving and offer some reflections on this, hopefully shining a little bit of, of a light in some way on the, on the way that this 
if we hold it wisely, take it on as a real practice, that it's, um, it's an essential and powerful aspect it's of our pra- path and practice as one of these pillars of Dhamma. And it's a direct and powerful training in non-clinging, where I started the talk, this idea of liberation, freedom through non-clinging. In and of itself, it actually is, can be a practice of, of freedom. In one place in the suttas, uh, the Buddha said that one, uh, one, one could, should give with the thought, this ennobles the mind and beautifies the mind. Giving with the thought, this brings nobility to the mind. This uh, beautifies, adorns the mind. An important consideration here that, that we give with this idea in mind, that we, we give with a certain kind of reflection and a certain intention. Remember Kamala saying uh, that she was taking care of Manindraji once. She, he lived with her at different times in her life for uh, over years. And she was, um, he was staying with her and, and she was caring with, for him because he had some health concerns. And, and he, he, he spoke to her about her generosity in, in uh, doing this and said she could either give with wisdom or without wisdom. And, and he talked about the way that giving with wisdom brings together um, the intention, mindfulness, and, and a certain understanding, clarity of seeing that, that we give uh, with, with the understanding that, um, that this offering is for our benefit, that it is part of the path part of the uh, way to freeing the mind and heart. So we give as a pure act of benevolence and with an understanding that it's a support for the mind, that it brings, that it ennobles the mind, that it's an aspect of freeing the mind and heart. We bring this to the fore in the practicing of giving. This is from Bhikkhu Bodhi. Giving has a particularly intimate connection to the entire movement of the Buddha's path. For the goal of the path is the uprooting of greed, hatred, and delusion. And the cultivation of generosity directly weakens greed and hate while facilitating that pliancy, flexibility of mind that allows for the eradication of delusion. intimate connection to the entire movement of the path. I like that way of saying that. And when we practice giving, the mind becomes um, less tight, less fixated. There's some relaxing of that tendency right there. More spacious, more flexible. Great aid in our meditation practice. It tends to uh, unbind us, erode, weaken um, our self-cherishing, uh, self-focused tendencies, broadens our, our view. It, it creates connection, interconnection, cultivate care and concern with others, strengthens metta and the other Brahma-viharas and, and is actually a direct expression of them. It's this direct counter to the energies of greed, grasping, clinging, is, is this open hand. The Buddha spoke about the power and benefits of giving in, in different places. This is a, a very famous quotation from the Itivuttaka. If beings knew as I know the results of giving and sharing, they would not even eat without having, having given, nor would the stain of selfishness overcome their minds. 
even if it were their last bite, their last mouthful, they would not eat without having shared if there were someone to receive their gift. I think quotations like this, you know, they get repeated a lot and there's some risk that they start sounding kind of like a cliche or we lose the the power and profundity of the words if we hear them too often. It's really a strong statement there. If beings knew as I know the power of this, they would not let any opportunity go by to practice. I've been extremely fortunate over the years to uh, have a number, many opportunities to travel, to live for periods of time in South and Southeast Asia and in sometimes in Buddhist countries, pilgrimages in India to the Buddhist holy sites and spent time uh, living in, in the robes of a Buddhist monk. And I think when I began spending, when I spent some extended periods in, in places where uh, the practice of giving is woven into the culture in a, in a way, in terms of it being a, or seen as a practice, held in a little bit different way than we mostly find, than I had found in my life before then at least. I began to really connect to the power of this practice, the potential of it. And I think it was especially maybe when I was on the receiving end of it. And it's not to say, when I speak about this, it's not to say that there's not uh, any generosity in, in the United States or in the West. It's, it's greatly here and, it, and there are abundant examples of incredible generosity. Such outpourings of uh, support for relief efforts when there are natural disasters at home or abroad and so many foundations and humanitarian groups and and they do so much uh, good in the world. The figures of how much uh, money is offered through philanthropy in this country, I don't have those, but it's it's huge. These uh, often it, the offerings uh, come in the form of philanthropy or volunteerism or good deeds in these different ways, and and they do a lot of good. But they also sometimes reinforce a sense of they can reinforce a sense of separation at times of. And, and a sense that giving is a good thing to do and it's something we should do if we can and and um, to help others who maybe are less fortunate or in, di- in difficult circumstances. And we, it kind of can sometimes reinforce some space in there where others are held apart and, and treated as other than different. In some of the uh, Buddhist countries where I've spent time, at least in places and at times, the practice of giving is is often held a bit differently and is, is still really alive in, in some places and sometimes in that culture, in those cultures, in a way that fosters connection, actually counters feelings of separation. And there's uh, this joy and delight and deep dignity in giving and receiving that I found so touching and moving and um, transforming for me at times. I've spent a lot of uh, time uh, in Burma, Myanmar, over many, many years, I often go there um, for my own practice time. That's where I lived in robes. I have been part of some, a couple of, and lately one in particular, small uh, humanitarian aid project there uh, that I am part of with a a few friends. We call it Metta in Action. Uh, 
and we mostly support small nunneries and these uh, schools that the nuns have started there. And there are kids who go to school uh, in these poor uh, areas who wouldn't have a chance because schools have been started and there's no charge for them to go there. And they're, they're close by so they can get to them. And I have a certain relationship with that country over many, many years. And, and I'll tell some stories. And, and uh, I just want to say that my, my stories are based on this long relationship and on, on my experiences there. And it's not to say that there are not big problems in that country. There's, uh, there are tragic things going on there in the name of Buddhism. And greed, hatred, and delusion are alive and well there. But I've also been so touched and moved by my time there. And so that's true too. But I'm offering uh, any stories that I share with you uh, come from that, from my personal experience and from, um, from that side of things. And not in any way does it um, overlook or diminish the... Uh, the problems that are there. But I'm so struck every time I go, I'll be going this winter uh, by the, the kindness and generosity that I encounter in Burma. And in the meditation centers uh, where you can go to practice, there is no charge to go there. There's never a charge. It's all completely run on donations supported by by the communities around there, people who value that. And then support comes through the, the meal offerings like we have here. It's so lovely to see the meal donations. That that didn't used to be there. It started at some point. I don't know how long we've had the the board up there where we we can write a dedication and people offer the meals. It maybe happened, but it wasn't. It wasn't put out there in that way. We started it some time ago now. And that's that's how it is. And in, in, uh, at the meditation centers, there's a big board, and they write the uh, name of the donor. And in some places, um, especially certain times of the year, say during the rains period, especially, um, it's hard. They'll be all filled up way in advance. It's hard to get space even in some of these very big places. I remember a friend had gone to uh, the Paok uh, Monastery to spend uh, time in meditating during the rains. And and uh, it's big during the rains, I think. I don't know, there were like 800 people there or something. I don't know, how many were there when you were there, Bhante? Uh, it can be like a thousand. can get up to a thousand or more. Yeah, monks only. And then there are others <laughs> there too. And he, before he was going to ordain for the period, and he, he went to uh, make a meal offering before he gave up all his his uh, lay things and his money, uh, and um, that was full. All the all the meal donations were full for the whole rains period, and mostly from the people outside. I remember when I first was spending time at a, a small monastery in. Um, Upper Burma in the Sagang Hills, which is one of my, I think maybe my favorite place in the world. And and the, I wasn't used to this and families would come, sometimes extended families or, or a lot of people from a small village would come to offer a meal to to us. It was a, I was going to this retreat that I, I went to and also helped to uh, manage and then uh, later on even to help teach a bit. It was a retreat that's been going on now since 1997. And it was taught by a beloved teacher of mine, Sayadat Ulakana, who's passed away now. But there's still, it's taught by a, a Burmese meditation master and one or two Western teachers, kind of a, a fusion retreat, they call it. You get some of both, support from both uh, a, a Burmese teacher and, and Western teachers. And these families would come. I remember going into the hall and and there'd be this, they'd be lined up, <laughs> 20 people. 
having come and been probably up almost all night cooking. And they would sit and watch you eat. And having an audience while you're eating <laughs> helps with, you know, staying quite mindful. <laughs> but it, you know, it's kind of, it was hard. It was, it was strange for me at first to have an audience. You know, they just really wanted to see the people receiving this. And there was such, there was so much joy in that. This direct support. And they had such respect for anyone who would come from so far away. And from a place that to them must be so incredible. You know, those of us coming from the United States or from Europe. It's like an a dreamland, you know, had no dreamland, these people from small villages, no idea. But to come all the way there to meditate, I just thought that was amazing. There are various examples of wise giving. One of these is giving with the clear understanding that, that these generous actions will um, bring Benefit, benefit in the moment and benefit in the future. And this ties into the concept of merit or punya in Pali that's woven throughout the teachings. And remember when I first heard about this idea of merit, I was taking care of some monks here in this country in California. It was uh, Ajahn Amaro and some others before the Abhayagiri Monastery was started. And... Um, I had helped to set up a place for them to spend the rains and done a lot of work to make this place a very um, uh, remote spot available. It was that time, actually, the the land that became a Bayagiri was offered at that time. And so I had done a lot of work to make the place. And then I was staying there for the whole period to make sure there was food every day and um, help, help that retreat happen. And someone said, oh, such merit. You're, there's so much merit you're getting from doing this. And and I didn't understand it and I didn't want it. I thought it was, it felt wrong to me as though I were somehow doing this with some idea of some reward. I thought that it diminished my offering in some way or that it, it felt bad to me at first. Because I didn't understand it. I didn't understand that it's it's this acknowledgement of the power and the goodness of it and and that one can actually hold that in one's mind, not in some way that is as though we're expecting a reward, but but with an understanding of the goodness of it. To bring this to mind, understanding that we're planting seeds of our future happiness, of the future happiness of others. And to to bring this into the mind, acknowledge and delight in the goodness of it. Another example of wise giving uh, that one gives with the aim of um, supporting and enhancing our movement towards enlightenment. One of my friends uh, came to that same retreat at the Chazwa Monastery that I mentioned. And... and, uh, and she wanted to offer a meal and Sayada Ulakana said that she had to offer it um, with this aspiration uh, to realize Nibbana, that it would be the support and the cause for her realization of uh, Nibbana. And had her repeat these words, which you repeat any time you make an offering in, in monasteries and nunneries. Idam me punyam, Nibbana sa pachayo hotu. May this merit of mine be the uh, cause, condition for my realization of Nibbana. And it had never occurred to her that she would actually bring this into her heart and mind as a possibility and to offer the meal with this, holding this idea in her mind. It was was very um, profound for her to, to bring that into her heart, into her mind. There was a time during the time when I, uh, a longer, longest period of time when I was living as a monk and I was, um, for, for most of a year, I was doing a practice um, where I ate only one meal from what was put into my bowl. It's a kind of um, 
a sort of austerity practice called dutanga that's allowed. And so I was going on alms round, that's right livelihood when you're living as a, as a monk or actually an alms mendicant. Uh, um, you would walk through, I would walk through the village and receive food offerings. And, and the way you can do that is very specific. You can't, you can't ask for anything. You can stand in the street and if someone wants to put something into your bowl, then then they may you're there for that to happen. But you you can't go up to a house or ask for anything. And it was so interesting to the different ways. You know, sometimes the offerings, you know, there's always there's people going on alms round everywhere, and sometimes people just plop a spoon of rice in the bowl, and it was very kind of matter of fact. But sometimes the way it was given was with such care and. Um, care and delicacy and the sense of reverence there in the doing of it. And to be, to feel worthy of having someone going down and bowing to me (laughs) on the streets of the village and then putting something into my bowl. There's a, a reflection on the qualities of the Sangha and the last line in that, that reflection is anuttarang punyaketam lokasa, usually translated as they give occasion for great goodness to arise in the world. And I, at a certain point I thought, ah, this, this part of this, one way I could see this was this opportunity to practice giving in this way. And it was this realization that they, those, those offerings were not given to me, but they were given to what the robes I was wearing symbolized. They were given to uh, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, to the Triple Gem. They were an expression of faith in that. It was not personal. But the valuing that people had of this, there was one young woman, uh, I did the same route for months and there was a young woman who would come out every day and and at first she came out by herself to the to the fence and then um, later people helped her out. She was weak and it was clear that she was not hel- she was not well. She had something uh, some illness that was that was getting worse and and uh, over weeks um, at one point they they would beckoned me to come into the yard. So if you're invited in, you can go in. And I would go up closer to the house because she was too weak to come out, to make the walk out. And so then I would kneel down so that she could, um, because she had to sit in a chair finally, and I would go down low enough so that she could offer into my bowl from kneeling, where I was kneeling. And then uh, <clears throat> telling this, thinking of this time th- and telling the story uh, brings these feelings up so uh, freshly for me. One day she wasn't there and I heard that she had passed away. But right up until she, she couldn't do it anymore, she wanted to offer, make that offering. And the valuing of that and, and to be worthy of receiving that. So this brings up a lot, you know, and it's to, to be, to receive well is really um, a practice and something worth exploring. And, um, you know, brought up so much at times like that. You know, I had resources I could fall back on that these, this was a poor village. You know, some days I only got rice and not very good quality rice. I had made a determination when I decided to live on alms. If I got anything other than rice, I would start doing that and then I would do it from then on. And, and I got that first day, I got rice and the tiniest little piece of papaya you've ever seen, a tiny sliver. And that was what I had. And, and some days, all I got was rice. And some days I got incredible outpouring of stuff. But to be, to, to receive well, it's the other, ha- the other side of giving is receiving. And, um, 
And it's our job to receive well sometimes. You know, we can have unconscious attitudes around uh, being the recipient of generosity. And sometimes kind of a sort of no thanks or, or kind of dismissive or, or some kind of, what we think might be a kind of humility, but is actually maybe not a real humility. But to, um, to actually bring to mind the goodness of the offering to be um, a good receiver. <laughs> like that's our job is to receive well sometimes. To delight in the goodness of it. And, and to understand that giving and receiving are two sides of the same thing. And there's this deep connection to mutuality and mutual dignity. No one is diminished in that exchange if it's done well. And this is something I learned so much in, in uh, I've learned so much in Burma because there's such a delight. You know, we go around to these poor nunneries in the winter time and we, we see what they need and we see what we can do and we give some money. Maybe it's for enough to, to start to dig a well or build a toilet or help pay for some of the supplies for the kids at the school or the different things that we, you know, and we do it. We take it there and we put it in people's hands. That's how we do it. And there's such, um, such a lesson in receiving well <laughs> from these people. And there's such a, a sense of, um, yeah, mutuality and dignity in that offering. In one place, uh, the Buddha taught and said, you know, that it's understood that giving brings happiness in three times. It gives happiness before, when we think of making an offering, it gives happiness while we're doing it, and happiness afterwards when we think about having uh, done something wholesome and skillful. And it's good to bring it, bring it into our mind and think of our generous actions and wholesome, skillful uh, deeds, whatever they might be. I'm going to read this, um, an excerpt from the Mahanama Sutta. This is the Buddha's teaching this householder. His name is Mahanama. He says, Mahanama, there's the case where you recollect your own generosity, thinking it is a gain, it is a great gain for me that among people overcome with the stain of possessiveness, I, living at home, with my awareness cleansed of the stain of possessiveness, am freely generous, open-handed, delighting in being generous, responsive, delighting in the distribution of alms. At any time when a disciple of the noble ones recollects generosity, that one's mind is not overcome with greed, not overcome with aversion, not overcome with delusion. The mind then heads straight based on this generosity. And when the mind is headed straight, a disciple of the noble ones gains a sense of the goal, gains a sense of Dhamma, gains joy connected with Dhamma. And in one who is joyful, rapture arises. In one who is rapturous, the body becomes calm. In one whose body is calmed, experiences ease. In one at ease, the mind becomes concentrated. Mahanama, you should develop this recollection of generosity while you are walking, while you are standing, while you are sitting, while you are lying down, while you are busy at work, and while you are resting in your home crowded with children. Pretty much all the time. Develop this recollection. When it's so easy to see all the ways we're not good enough, it's really good to bring our goodness. Often, one of the secret teachings, I give some free secret teachings for the chanting. There was a question about secret teachings. If you come, sometimes there are secret teachings. One of them that I do is I really get people, I try to get you to bring to mind a sense of uh, appreciation of the goodness of your practice for the day. To bring it to mind and then uh, to offer that. To dedicate that for the welfare, the happiness of a particular being or a 
all beings. But to actually recollect it, not an assessment of how well you think it's going, but just an appreciation for making any effort at all. So much I could say on this subject. The giving develops within us this sense of inner abundance. That's not based on some objective criteria of, of external wealth, but is the sense that we have enough to share. that sense of inner abundance and we connect with that, then, then this quality of gratitude follows on directly from that. Appreciation. There are all kinds of ways we can practice giving. We might give materially when we can, when it's appropriate to do so. We can give of our time and our energy. Maybe we can teach or volunteer or do work in some communities. Or maybe just allowing someone to be who they are. That can be an incredibly generous thing to do. And the writer Steve Goodyear once said, we can give time, we can give our expertise, we can give our love or simply give a smile. What does that cost? The point is none of us can ever run out of something worthwhile to give. And it's said that the gift of the Dhamma surpasses all other gifts. And this is the gift that we are offering here through our practice. Every moment we're offering this gift. Whether we think about it or not, but it's good to think about it. It's good to bring it into the mind, into the heart. Do it intent with intention, with mindfulness, with care. We're giving the gift of the Dhamma in this way that we're planting these seeds of awakening in our own mind and heart. And through that, it's rippling out and we're planting it in the world. And there's no greater gift. And we can intentionally hold this. And I've suggested this that we bring to mind, may this practice be my gift to the world. May my practice be an offering. May I practice for the benefit of others, for those who are not able, for all the reasons they might not be able. And if we bring awareness to this, we'll start to see that the practice of giving is the practice of freedom in and of itself. It's the same practice as the practice of non-clinging, of release, of letting go. So maybe we can sit quietly for a moment and, and bring to mind our efforts today. Bring to mind the goodness of our uh, conduct, the beauty and power of our wholesome intention and bringing to the forefront of our minds uh, this movement towards understanding, valuing wisdom and love. Bring that into the heart and if it's possible for you, if it's meaningful, then offer that as a gift to all beings. May all beings receive this goodness. May it be for their happiness, for their welfare. 
may it be the cause and condition for our liberation and for the liberation of all beings everywhere without exception. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.